0: AI with Sally, a podcast that takes a closer look at some of the most interesting technology stories on artificial intelligence and machine learning. We'll hear about the latest in hardware and software that has a big impact on the world of AI. I'm your host, Sally Ward Foxton. Welcome back to AI with Sally. In this episode, I'll be talking to Qualcomm's Vinesh Sukumar about generative AI in smartphones and the AI accelerators inside Qualcomm's latest generation, Snapdragons. You can hear that interview later in this episode, but first up, here's some AI news you may have missed from eetimes.com. Esperanto, one of the startups building a more than 1,000 core chip for data center AI acceleration based on RISC-V, is pivoting. The company was previously marketing its accelerator, a hyperscaler's recommendation inference workloads, but it's refocused on high-performance computing and large language models in the wake of ChatGPT's surge in popularity. Esperanto is planning on a form factor compatible with OCP Glacier Point cards for its hyperscale customers, but it's worked with Penguin to put the same first-generation chip on a more versatile PCI Express card, which extends its power envelope and therefore its performance. The new power envelope is 15 to 50 watts. Esperanto's demonstrated Meta's OPT13B LLM running on a single Esperanto chip for its AI SDK. And the company's also built a second software stack that allows scientific computing customers to write their own custom kernels. You can read all the details in my story at eetimes.com. Nordic Semiconductor is set to buy a US startup at Lazo, primarily for the company's hardware IP for AI acceleration. Nordic's Seattle Holstad told me the company is planning on adding. On chip AI acceleration to its SOCs across its entire portfolio. The company specializes in wireless microcontrollers for IoT devices, especially medical, wellness devices, and wearables. The company sees a need for AI acceleration right down to the tiniest microcontrollers, whether it's to do more AI or to reduce the power of the AI you might already be doing on the ARM core. At Lazo, which was founded in 2016 in San Diego, has eight team members who will join Nordic. You can read the full story on eetimes.com. TinyML will become the largest driver of the microcontroller market in the next 10 years, according to Remy Elwazan, the president of STMicroelectronics Microcontrollers and Digital ICs group. I had the pleasure of spending an hour with Remy, who's also formerly CEO of Movidius, um, and we were talking about the potential for the TinyML market. He said a tsunami of products with ML functionality on microcontrollers is coming. When he says a tsunami, for context... ST ships between 5 and 10 million 32-bit microcontrollers a day, every day. He said in five years, we'll have 500 million microcontrollers in the field running AI. In terms of scale deployments, he had several examples. He said industrial uh, predictive maintenance and anomaly detection are leading the way, but that those types of applications typically take three years from engagement to deployment. His view is vision and audio AI on microcontrollers, and those customers have started later, but the time to market is much quicker. We also spoke about the work ST is doing on its software toolchains to enable both these types of customer. If you want to read that interview with Remy Elwazan, head over to eTimes.com where I've put a link on the podcast page. Chipmaker Qualcomm has shown off a couple of interesting demos recently with large transformer models running on the company's mobile phone application processors. Is this a sign of what might be coming and how far away is it? Head of AI Product Management at Qualcomm, Vinesh Sukumar, is giving a keynote presentation at next month's AI Hardware Summit in Santa Clara called The Future of AI is on Device. So I sat down with Vinesh to find out what's possible today in terms of generative AI on a smartphone, what might be coming further down the line, and we went into detail on some of the AI features in Qualcomm's latest Snapdragon range. Vinesh, welcome to the
1: show. Thank you, Sally, for having me. It's really a pleasure talking to you.
0: Uh, So, Vinesh, you'll be giving a keynote presentation at the AI Hardware Summit on September 13th, and your keynote is called, The Future of AI is on Device. Um, So, that's a very exciting topic. That's what we're going to talk about a bit today. Um, So, maybe I'll I'll kick us off. Um, I've seen Qualcomm's examples in the media um, running generative AI in various forms on a smartphone. Maybe let's start by talking about what kind of AI is possible on a smartphone today.
1: A great question, Sally. So, when you look at uh, the evolution of use cases, let's say on handsets or smartphones today, historically was very vision oriented, which is you know looking at a picture, looking at a video. How do you enhance it um, so that you know you're able to connect it, make it personalized to the user? Now, with time, obviously, it has migrated uh, to include other elements like audio, speech, you know, textual information, so that you can have a multimodality fusion to get. Uh, a better experience to the user now i would suspect these are like bread and butter use cases will continue to evolve um, you know want to get better snr uh, better quality you know uh, uh segment your background uh or you know if somebody photobombs you or video bombs you you want to remove them absolutely that will continue for sure yeah but the anticipation is moving forward uh, how do you really use ai uh, you know, to really, I guess, enhance and use a form saying, what is next, right? And I think uh, generative AI is that portion where the anticipation is using generative AI, uh, can I move towards having a smart or a personal assistant who's able to take care of, uh, you know, simplistic tasks for you, right? And or be able to use the bread and butter use cases around image and video and morph it completely. Um, quite recently, uh, my sixty-five-year-old mom, uh, you know, started using uh, uh, Stable Diffusion, you know, slash entirely from OpenAI, and she was so excited and creating photos. Uh, you know, it, it got <laughs> connected to me because you know, uh, if you're able to connect uh, to an audience which is just beyond in you know, the teens, that's awesome, right? And I think OpenAI is the next, uh, next big thing.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Um so I saw that Qualcomm demonstrated um a 1.5 billion parameter model called ControlNet um on a smartphone recently you know for example um how quickly are these these large generative AI models going to come to smartphones
1: uh, I think uh the, you know when you look at uh the reason why we're intending to do it is historically when you look at these uh, large models uh, give or take about uh, 12 18 months ago they demonstrated a huge amount of success and captivated a lot of audience from all of, from various geos, but everything was running on the cloud, right? There was a lot of interest and, um, but the intention was, you know, can, can this be personalized? Can it be connecting to, uh, can it have a certain amount of human touch? Um, and that's only possible, you know, if you're trying to do this on the edge. You now, obviously you can continue to run this on the cloud, but that means that you have to share some of your personalized information and, um, and you know, at that point of time, uh, security or any kind of private uh, information about yourself is out the door. So our anticipation as we started off with Stable Diffusion, which was an open source version, um, we optimized it, and then we migrated to ControlNet, also optimized it without uh, impacting accuracy and performance. And we're able to do this on, on a smartphone. We demonstrated this give or take, I think a couple of months ago. We had taken a 1.5 billion model, as you mentioned before. We quantized it. And the intention was, you know, can I take a resident image from your gallery? And then based off your textual command or a voice command, can I transform that into something else? That could be changing the background um, or and or you know, changing your attire or you know, changing you know, uh, the pictorial representation to be more cartoonish. Anything that you desire, so that you know, uh, you know, uh, 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 you can continue to look better, beautiful in you know, however you want to quantify that stuff. Yes,
0: please. But just yep.
1: to, but just to <laughs> captivate, uh, you know, uh, the common consumer interest. So we think uh, that's an interesting use case for smartphones, and I anticipate we'll use the same thing for other models like uh, large language models as well.
0: Sure. Um, when you say optimize, uh, was it mainly quantization uh, that you're doing to to try and fit in these big networks, or are there some other optimizations that you do?
1: Great question. So when you when you start enabling these experiences on a smartphone, you obviously have to start off with the obvious question: is uh, how are you able to connect to the user, right? So the most important thing is uh, what does the user experience tell us? Now, uh, which means it usually transfers to quality of service. Your number one element is when I'm putting a certain command how fast am i able to get a response back. So that's one. So that's an optimization around it. A second portion of it is uh, smartphones are mobile devices. So by definition, power consumption is extremely critical. So you want to make sure that you don't have this, you a know, uh, uh, high amount of uh, consumption that drains the battery when you're trying to enable this uh, kind of experience. The third thing I would say is that uh, smartphones also come with a various amount of memory footprints. It could be 8 gigabytes, 12 gigabytes, 10 gigabytes kind of stuff. The intention is when you start to store them in memory, that it does not consume uh, uh, you know, a lot of memory uh, usage. So which means by definition, you want to quantize it from a float model to a fixed point model, so that it has a much lower memory footprint. But at the same time, you want to make sure that the uh, physical accuracy is not impacted when you do this transformation from a float to a fixed point. So which means we have to do a, a lot of studies, post-training quantization, quantization of the training, so that the physical, residual, spatial, uh, and dynamic quality is always maintained as such. So I kind of put all of this, you know, small, small variables, I would say, under the optimization bucket, but, you know, they serve a different purpose.
0: So I saw uh, an event recently where the CEO of Qualcomm Cristiano Amon was on stage, and he said uh, that the next gen of Snapdragon uh, device coming to the market will potentially support kind of 20 billion parameters or something in that in that range. I think we already touched on it, but I was ask, I was going to ask about what are the technical challenges here with um, running these very large generative AI models in a resource constrained environment. I mean, memory footprint I think uh, is probably the the most important, right?
1: Definitely. I mean, one element is definitely the uh, the memory footprint because you want to make sure. Uh, for example, if you take um, the Llama seven billion model, so by definition translates to about 13 gig of uh, DRAM space if you're using on a float. And I think uh, if you want to transition to four bits, give or take, is about five gig or less. So you have a range of operation by definition. Now, if I kind of scale that to a 20 billion uh, parameter model the need for DRAM is much, much higher, right? So there's going to be a lot more push and emphasis on moving towards lower bit depth uh, to really start off with that lower DRAM, and I should say also flash storage. The next question kind of comes up is when I really try to invoke these models, how much time does it take from, let's say from ROM or flash to your your RAM and from the RAM back to your local SRAM for analysis, right? All this kind of comes back to quality of service that we discussed before. Yeah. And... uh, uh, what kind of use case are you really mapping it to? Usually, LLMs are kind of experts itself in token rate, right? So the question really becomes: Is, is the use case mostly summarization related? Is it mostly uh, um, you know something to do with smart assistant or composition of an email, as an example? If it is summarization, then you have to put a lot more emphasis on what is your input string length. If your input string length can support two k, four k, eight k, as such in terms of context, because that would define uh, you know what your output token rate is right which means that if you move towards let's say a higher contextual length uh, you know there's almost going to be definitely a linear scale dependency in what you can generate in the output side similarly uh, the question really kind of comes back to is uh, uh, do you want to personalize it as an example so which means people are talking about um, low rank adaptation or with uh, reinforcement learning with human factor to really understand you know when you try to deploy these LLMs on the edge can you it to the user which means that you have enough structured information can i use the structured information to modify the bias functions specifically in this case activations and possibly base to some extent and then kind of crystallize the output response to the user so again these are difficult problems to solve but again volcom has the necessary i should say uh, the uh, uh, the mindset because of a lot of exposure and experience in this front, and also the investment on the software and the hardware side to make it happen. And now, you know, you're going to see some interesting announcements come up in our Snapdragon Tech Summit, which is scheduled for October of this year. Then we're going to be talking about some, some of these challenges and what we anticipate to do about them moving forward.
0: With tuning to the user, would a test like that be done on the device or would that go to the cloud? It's kind of like training tuning, isn't it?
1: Yeah, so this, uh, when you look at uh, uh, fine-tuning, there are different portions to it. Now, obviously, mm-hmm. when you happen to have an open-source model uh, like Llama as an example, uh, you obviously have to fine-tune it to a specific use case. Uh, that obviously happens outside. It can be done on a server, it can be done on the cloud, you know, on your local resident machine, as such, wherein you are physically modifying your bias functions to that specific use case for that structured data set. Next comes as fine tuning, an addition to it, wherein you want to get the user in perspective, and this happens on the device because now you happen to have information which is resident and has been collected with time about the user, and you want to be uh, optimizing it further uh, that you can connect specifically uh, to any um, in a person of interest and any geo of interest as such. That the last portion of it, I would say, completely is on the device.
0: Let's talk hardware uh, for a few minutes, if that's okay. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, I understand the, uh, the the latest generation of uh, Snapdragon devices contains this AI engine. Let's talk about what's in this AI engine. Um, the biggest part of the AI acceleration, I understand, is the Hexagon uh, processor. Is that right? Tell us about how that works.
1: That is correct. Great question. So, when you look at AI workloads, by definition, you know we have to start looking at what are the key performance indicators. The key performance indicators when you break it down could be either first-inference latency or latency-sensitive. Some of them could be mostly peak performance or inference per second in traditional nomenclature or IPS. And some of them are more sustained use cases, which has more IPS per watt. Now, our expectation is you really have the right collateral from a hardware perspective to satisfy these three different KPIs. And... uh, some engines are pretty good in some of them and some engines are not. For example, when you look at sustainability or better performance per what, especially when you have sustained use cases in a very resource-constrained environment like a handset. So this way we put a lot of investment in our uh, AI engine called a Hexagon Engine. Uh, now, Hexagon Engine, which was defined, always had a certain, you know, uh, elements in its play. First thing, is it generic enough to satisfy various classes of workloads? What I mean by saying that is, when you look at DL architectures, you have uh, convolution. Sorry, you have um, a segmentation related uh, models. You have detection related models, classification models. You could have transformer related architectures. All kind of stuff. Our anticipation is the a hexagon generic enough to satisfy all these categories of use cases. So that is the first check off for us. The second element of it is you know when you look at most of these EI use cases. Some of them are scalar-dependent, some of them are vector-dependent, some of them are matrix-heavy, and many of the workloads to a large extent are matrix-heavy. So We kind of have what we call as a dedicated block called our HMX engine, which is part of our hexagon engine, which is anchored mostly towards uh, matrix accelerations. Then you have a block, what we call as um, uh, hexagon vector engine or HVX, which is mostly uh, supplemented as supporting for vector-based accelerations. And then you have a dedicated memory as any other AI engine to really make sure your round-trip memory from system DRAM is limited because it helps save on power, because which is very critical for us for sustained operations. So these are the three primary blocks, I would say. Your mm-hmm. vector engines, your, your tightly coupled memory, along with your HMX or matrix accelerated block to really supplement and support these functions. Now, around it, you have certain choices. What kind of data types do you invest in? Is it fixed point? Is it uh floating point what is the ratio around it do we have the necessary bandwidth in place to be able to transfer the data from local dram uh, along with certain you know uh, techniques on compression how do you deal with sparsity those kind of stuff but you know it's uh, it's got i would say um, uh, a lot of necessary ingredients and you could see those investments over time has showcased our benefits in terms of performance we regularly make our submissions to ai benchmark community the ML Perf or ML Commons is one such area we actively participate. Uh, and there's a specific category for handsets called ML Perf Mobile. And, you know, when you look at historical data, at least uh, if I'm referencing for the last three years, uh, uh, Qualcomm has stood at the top in terms of performance and performance per watt. So all these investments make a big deal to really make sure we are versatile enough to, you know, to supplement these AI challenges.
0: Can you tell me more? So, one thing I read about was micro tile inferencing, which I thought was a fascinating um, idea. Uh, tell us briefly kind of how my- micro tile inferencing works.
1: Yeah, great question. So, we kind of introduced the concept of micro tile inferencing uh, in the Tech Summit last year, uh, around, uh, I think, October of last year, when we were talking about uh, Snapdragon 8 Gen 2, which is powering, I would say, uh, the Samsung uh, 23 devices and most of the premium uh, chipsets. The expectation is, you know, when you look at these graphs uh, or the deep learning graphs, these deep learning graphs are getting quite complicated, you know, moving uh, moving forward. So our intention is, instead of reading the whole graphs in one go, we try to break these graphs into smaller graphs, and with the anticipation that, you know, because you understand the heuristics, you understand how these graphs actually function, we try to store them in a tiled fashion uh, along with memory allocation, and as such, when you want to infer them or when you want to run it. Uh, at you know at a given instant you are able to pull the necessary information associated with each of the graph with an intelligent scheduler that's available that's mapped onto the hexagon engines so that's what we call as micro tile inferencing wherein our intention is to support you uh, bigger graphs uh, uh give you the desired inference per second at lowest memory footprint um, and um, uh, and much better latency
0: uh, with the idea of the scheduler, does it run, can it run the tiles in different order? Is that and then keep the data, keep you from having to go to the memory for the data? Is that the idea, or is that one of the? That ideas? That is correct.
1: That is yeah. one of the ideas. Is because you understand the uh, heuristics of the graph, you understand the combinations of the graph, you know exactly what needs to happen at certain instant in time. So based of how you schedule the operations, we try to pull them in necessarily, and then we invoke it at runtime.
0: Right. Another feature I spotted um, that I wanted to ask about is um, direct hardware acceleration for activations and for group convolutions. This is aimed at transformers, right? And how does it that is work? That's
1: correct. Our intention is when you look at uh, transformers as such, right? Uh, uh, transformers are um, a new class of architectures which has a lot of uh, contextual based information that's available in the graph itself so that it can kind of predict the sequence based on the historical information that's available to it. Our intention is when you look at these transformers, how would be the best way to accelerate it? Some of them, uh, a significant portion of the transformers has uh, what you call as softmax or nonlinear functions as part of it. And what kind of investments do we do from a hardware perspective to really make sure that you can accelerate these graphs? So we kind of started looking at the hardware and we thought certain portions of the graph, especially the nonlinear portions that exist, can be fully accelerated. And as such, we had kind of, uh, uh, Put In uh, investments on activations, which is again kind of uh, uh, talks about the performance uh, of what a certain uh, prediction network needs to happen, and we accelerated it depending upon uh, the nature of the use case as, as such. Yeah, yeah, so I would say yes, so uh, it's a kind of a invoking, uh, and as you start getting a lot more. Um, uh, transformers into play, for example, visual transformers, we will kind of expose a little bit more details on how we're planning to accelerate them this year as part of Snapdragon um, the Summit. Cool.
0: Um, in the current gen, you also, uh, it seems like you doubled performance of the tensor acceleration, and I wondered whether you just made the tensor accelerator twice as big, or did you uh, have some other trick up your sleeve?
1: Uh, so, definitely, uh, we had improved the sizing associated mm-hmm. with the tensor acceleration. So, by definition, definitely give you high performance. And at the same time, um, we also included uh, uh, what you call optimizations in our software stack, which could include elements around compression, uh, how do you look at sparsity? Um How do you look at uh, data transpose and those functions, so a combination of all the above I would say from a stack perspective and from a hardware perspective give you twice the performance that we had announced um, last year
0: yeah um I noticed also one thing another thing I wanted to ask about hardware wise was support for um four bit uh, which like int four, which is pretty unusual to be honest with you, even at the edge um I know we spoke about quantization a little bit earlier. Um but is it really down to your quantization scheme that allows you to preserve the accuracy, or how are you able to use it for when others uh, find it, it it loses accuracy too much?
1: That's a fair question. I think uh, as you mentioned before, um our intention is to have sustained performance increase because a battery life is a premium for handsets and also for compute platforms, especially if it's a mobile user on the go. And so, how can you really not compromise on performance while having, you know, uh, much lower drain on the battery life? And one way to accomplish it, among others, is to go towards a lower bit precision. So that's why we started looking at it for a very long time ago. And I think those investments are also helping us in our gen AI use cases, especially on LLMs, because when you want to support larger models, the only way to really move towards that is low towards, you know, lower bit precision on the hardware. Now, when you do it, yes, there's always going to be challenges on, am I losing dynamic range? Am I losing spatial information on a per-pixel basis? Here, the intention really becomes as fine. Uh, uh, quantization is definitely a significant portion to it. When we look at post-training quantization, then based of calibration data, we look at quantization of a training so that the, it is just not about objective metrics. We also look at subjective metrics at certain regions of interest for high dynamic range scenes, and then we try to improve on performance now. I'm not suggesting by any means that four is the end-all, be-all, it solves everything. There's obviously going to be challenges, right? There are going to be certain use cases where inaccuracy is not met objectively or subjectively. In those cases, we looked at uh, automatic mixed precision, where we look at certain layers of the graph itself, and we look at 8-bit representation or 16-bit representation to make sure that we conserve on the end-user experience. That's most important for us.
0: And your um, software stack handles this auto mix precision, along with the compression and sparsity and quantization and everything else uh, that we've talked about so far. Um, How mature is the the software stack? Tell us a bit more about it.
1: Yeah, so we had announced also last year a stack that's officially called Qualcomm AI stack. Uh, The Qualcomm AI stack has plenty of layers around it Uh, that could be around the quantization portion, uh, the compiler portion, the runtime portion, the kernel portion, the library portion, the, all of it. As um someone said, you know, any given computer architecture lives and dies by a software. So we put a lot of emphasis on Qualcomm AI stack to be in a position to support all of the box functionality. And it's just not about functionality. We also need to look at performance and the performance tuning uh, associated with these complex graphs. But it's easier said than done because uh, when you look at the uh, the AI or the DL landscape, the amount of operators coming up is growing like almost like 20 ops every single month, give or take. Yep. The amount of models that are coming up is changing the landscape completely. Uh, you know, People never even envisioned generative models or GANs to be applicable for handsets, and these days it's all about GANs. So uh, I think uh, uh, as you're starting to get more and more complex graphs, It's all about how our software can really handle it, and we put a lot more emphasis on that portion.
0: Okay. Um, So as part of the AI engine, then, going back to hardware, my favorite topic, uh, in the AI engine uh, around the Hexagon processor, there are other parts of the AI engine, um, and these are labeled like... ISP and the Qualcomm sensing Hub and there are a couple of others. Um, tell us about how these other blocks are also contributing to your AI performance and how do you how do you uh, put the different different types of workload into these different blocks and and tell us about everything outside the hexagon?
1: Fair enough. So when you look at again AI use cases to a large extent, starting off with the bread and butter use cases around uh, uh, image and video, historically what you've seen is certain functions are very um, I would say, um, been there for a while. It's kind of stabilized. And you could look at this like computer vision blocks or acceleration units around the region of interest or even very simple uh, CV pipeline elements. Now, there's way to accomplish the same thing. You could do it through the AI path or you could do it through a fixed function uh, implementation of the same module. So um, we try to look at some of those use cases and then try to implement a fixed version version of it only because it saves on power and there's not much to gain even if i give a certain amount of DL uh, elements around it this could be elements like face detection as an example or optical flow as an example right so um, these could be embedded as part of your isp pipe itself to really make sure that you have the highest advantage in terms of uh, performance per watt and on latency now there's certain set of use cases um, which are always on or always sensing i should say and this could be around audio, could be around speech, uh, could be around uh, uh, visual analytics as well. When you happen to have these always sensing active, the most important element is uh, what is the power consumption? It needs to be in single digit milliwatts, and at the same time, uh, is it secure enough that this information cannot be hacked by someone else? So all this information is kind of contained in a special block, what we call the sensing hub, but the primary intention is to be in a position to support multimodality fusion, which could be elements around, you know, we talked about before sensing in combination with audio, speech, you know, linguistics, all this kind of stuff, in a single-digit milli- milliwatt envelope, and we have a security on play with anticipation that uh, the resident information that we collect from the user to certain to support certain use cases is, you know, uh, is within the um, within the device itself and is completely deleted once that. Uh, endpoint decision has reached. That's what we call as the sensing hub. Hopefully that clarifies the distinction between uh, what we have sensing hub and the portions of ISP.
0: That's great. Thank you very much um, for clarifying. Vinesh, before we finish up, um, can you give us any hints on what might be coming um, on your next gen hardware in terms of AI acceleration and, and how are you gonna support these massive generative AI models?
1: Absolutely. I think uh, for that, uh, I'll give you a teaser. But you guys to stay tuned for the big announcement that's going to come up in October as part okay. of our Snapdragon Tech Summit. But uh, there's going to be a huge amount of emphasis on generative AI as anticipated. We'll be talking a lot about uh, large language models, how we plan to support them, what kind of use cases is kind of coming along with them, what we have specifically done on the hardware side to really make sure we have a seamless and a very great user experience, And also, try to enhance the common use cases around um, on image, on camera, on video, and supplement that with LVM. A combination of your traditional uh, bread and butter use cases with LVM has fantastic recipes for success. And what is it going to look like? I'll stop at that, but it's a quick teaser. I seriously hope you'll be able to tune to our Tech Summit, where you're going to have a lot of interesting announcements on all our Snapdragon products.
0: Oh, I'll be watching. I'll certainly be watching. Don't worry about that. Vinesh, thank you so much. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thanks for joining Same
1: us. Here. Same here. Thank you for providing the opportunity. Love it.
0: Thank you very much, Vinesh. You can catch Vinesh's keynote, The Future of AI is on Device, at the AI Hardware Summit on September 13th at 10.30. That brings us to the end of the episode. Please tune in again next time to hear more news and views on AI, machine learning, and the technologies that enable them. If you're listening to this on the podcast page at eetimes.com, links to articles on topics we've discussed are shown on your left. AI with Sally is brought to you by Aspen Core Media. The host is Sally Ward Foxton and the producer is James Ede. Thank you for listening.